Well, amen. It is great to worship together with you, and we're gathered together as a community, some in this room, some watching from home, some sitting in pews, some sitting in Lazy Boys. Uh, we just appreciate everyone uh, worshiping together, connected through worship and through the Word this morning. And as we're connected, not only with the church here locally and across the country, but also across the world, let's pray for our world this morning and all the chaos going on in it. Father, you tell us that uh, we long for a time that you will take the instruments of war and you will turn them into plowshares because there will be no more war. But Father, until that time, we ask that your kingdom come and your will be done, that you would confuse the path of evil and that you would rise up and protect those who are innocent. And the world we live in today, we just long for your kingdom come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, man, what's interesting, we're talking a little bit about war today in that the Israelites are about to go to war or go into the land of war, and God has waited for 400 years for the Ammonites to, uh, to repent, and they have not. And so we come now in our study of the book of Numbers to chapter 13 and 14, and we find ourselves in the wilderness of Paran. And here in the wilderness of Paran, we're right on the edge here of the mountains of Moab, and in this particular location, we're going to learn in this section, and this is kind of the catalyst to it, one more lap around the wilderness, guys, until you learn how to trust me with an attitude of gratitude rather than not trusting me with the rumble of the grumble. And so where we're located today is they've come out of Sinai, and they're just on the north section of Paran, and they've just sent in 12 spies to go check out the land. And that's where we are in chapter 13. And really we're going to ask a question of ourselves that the Israelites need to ask of themselves. Who knows better? Do we know better than God? Just because things are unexpected to us, does that mean they're unexpected to God? Do we know better what size obstacles he can and can't handle? We're going to find the question of who's my boss, who knows better, who do I trust when uncertainty and difficulty comes my way is exactly the question of chapter 13 that's then addressed in chapter 14. It starts off in a pretty amazing way. Remember, these people have been waiting for 400 plus years, all the way going back to Abraham's promise that they would get this promised land. And this is the generation literally on the edge. They're on the edge of the promises of God, the edge of the promised land. And God is going to say to them, I want you to get a sneak peek at my gifts. I want you to go in and just see all the things I'm about to give you. Now, about you, are you the kind of person that if you know your, your spouse, your parents uh, hid gifts that you tried to get a sneak peek? When you're opening Christmas gifts, you have a tendency to stick the finger in and kind of peek into a corner? I do, as you can guess. I know all the techniques. This is really the idea here is God says, these 12 spies that are being sent in, I just want you to see what I'm going to give you. Look how he says it. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan which I am giving you. Whether or not you're going to win is a done deal. Whether or not you're going to succeed is a done deal. I am, these are my gifts. This is sneak peek time to see all the amazing things I'm going to give you. So I want you to send one from each tribe and one from each leader among them. And so Moses sent from them 
into the wilderness of Paran. And that's where we are. According to the command of the Lord, all these men who are the heads of the children of Israel, all 12 tribes representing all the people are going to see and get a sneak peek at God's gifts. Now, right before they go in, these are the names of all the people that went in. Moses, right before he goes in to spy out the land, he gives Joshua a brand new name. So I don't know if you know this, but the book of Joshua, Joshua was not his original name. Joshua's parents named him Hashua, which means saves or deliverer or rescuer. But right before he goes into the land, Moses says, we will no longer call you Hashua, we will now call you Joshua. He added the name of Jehovah or Yahweh to the front. So his name no longer means savior or one who saves, it now means God saves. So imagine those 40 days wandering through and spying out. Every time somebody called out his name, hey, Joshua, Joshua, the Lord saves. They come face to face with a big city. Hey, don't worry about the big city. Joshua, God saves. Hey, look at those giants. Those are big. Yeah, but Joshua, God's bigger than those things. In fact, in the New Testament, when the angel appears to Mary, he says, you shall name your child Joshua, which is translated into Latin, into English as Jesus. But Jesus' name comes from Joshua, which is the name Jehovah or Yahweh, and Joshua or Hashua combined, which means the Lord saves. And I think God and Moses does this just to keep on their mind, sneak peek at God's gifts, and remember God is the one that's going to save and deliver us. And here's Jesus right in the middle of the book of Numbers. So they head in. As they head in, God says, I want you to check the weather. And they're going to check the weather. And there's two types of weather you can check. It's whether or not we should go in or whether or not we should change strategies to see how God wants to give us a victory. Well, they decided to check the weather and saying, well, I don't think God can handle these giants and fortified cities. Well, God just wanted them to look at whether or not they need to adapt the strategies. Notice what happens here as they check the weather. So Moses said, go up this way to the south, go up to the mountains and see. Just go see what God has for you. That the land, what's the land like? Where the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many. Whether the land that may dwell is good or bad. Whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds. Whether the land is rich or poor. And whether there are forests or not. This is not whether or not we go in. Be of good courage. God's going to give it to us. We're just trying to figure out whether we should head clockwise or counterclockwise through this. Not whether or not we should go. Bring some of the fruit of the land back. Now the time was the season for first ripe grapes. I think often when we look at the challenges of our life, we check the weather, whether or not we should trust God, whether or not he's going to be big enough for our, our circumstances or worries or anxieties. When what God wants us to do is say, he's going to give me what I need. The question is whether or not he wants me to go clockwise or counterclockwise as I'm trusting him in the promised land. Because isn't it true, whatever fortified cities and giants they find, the real question is, who's bigger? God the giant or the giant in the city? God's city in heaven or their city on earth? And who knows better what God can handle and what God can bring success in? See, if it's up to God's work, 
If God's the one that's going to do the work, then it's never back down. Whatever we face doesn't matter. Never back down. God's doing the work. If it's about our resources and our skills, then it might be nevertheless, I don't think we can handle this. That's why you see the gospel embedded here. If it's up to what God saves us from, go in. Never back down. If it's based on your resources and your works, yeah, you might as well give up now. You see that right in the midst of these 12 different spies. So if it's based on God's work, never back down. Or if it's based on our works, well, nevertheless, let's go home. Here's what it says. Be of good courage. It says 12 spies, two, Caleb and Joshua, say, be of good courage. Let's trust God. They went and spied out the land. They brought some of the pomegranates back and the figs back and the grapes back. And the place was called the Valley of Eshcol because of the cluster which the man of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land for 40 days. And Caleb and Joshua say, this is based on God's work. Guys, let's trust him. It's going to be awesome. However, there's another 12 people or 10 people of the 12 who are saying, based on our resources, we ain't going to make it. In fact, we feel like grasshoppers. We've got grasshopper faith. But the men who had gone up said to them, we, our resources, are not able to go up against these people. They're stronger than we are. And they gave the, the children of Israel a bad report, bad, 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 of the land they spied out, whether or not they could do it. Saying the land through which we've gone to spies, it devours the inhabitants, it's so bad. There are people whom we saw there that are men of great stature, way too big for us to handle. We saw giants there, probably the descendants of the Anak that came from giants. And we felt like grasshoppers in our own sight. So we were in their sight. Then they gather the 12 spies together and say, let's vote. Do we know better than God? Or does God know better than us? And they're going to start complaining about God's plan, God's wisdom, God's direction. But here's the thing about complaining. Complaining is really God-splaining. See, God-splaining is where you explain to God how you know better than him. God, I would have gone in, but maybe you didn't realize there's giants here. And God's like, oh, I had no idea. Thank goodness I sent in the spies. God, let me explain to you why the timing isn't good. Let me explain to you why things aren't going according to the plan I have. Complaining is really God-splaining. And God-splaining is a self-righteous, proud attitude in the human heart that says that we know better than God. And that's why God takes it so seriously. Is because complaining is God-splaining. And I want to give you three aspects of God-splaining that kind of come out of chapter 14 that really are in your heart and my heart that God wants to address in hopes that we can realign to him and not waste 40 years of our life, but rather find a God who's courageous and gives us courage that we can face whatever is in our future. Okay, number one. God-splaining is basically a belief that we presume we know better than God, right? We worry, we try and take control, we are anxious because we know how things should work. Here's what happens in the passage. So all the congregation, having heard the report from the ten spies, lifted up their voices and cried, and they wept all night. Wow, that sounds really bad. And the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. 
And the whole congregation said to them, here's what complaining does, right? Complaining is based on God-splaining, which is proud arrogance. And notice what complaining does. If only we had died in the land of Egypt. Huh. If only we had died in this wilderness. They're on the edge of the best God has for them. And they're actually contemplating suicide. Now they begin to accuse God. Talk about God's planning. Remember I said complaining is God's planning. Why has the Lord brought us? What is he thinking? What was he doing? We're going to die by the edge of the sword. Our wives and our children have become victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, yeah, yeah, let's select a leader. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And return to Egypt. We're going to explain to God that his plan was bad, his path is bad, the obstacles are bad, the, 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 the success rate is bad, the report was bad, and where we came out of wasn't all that bad. God's planning. Here's just a few things that complaining does. Complaining exaggerates the present. Living now is worse than dying in the wilderness, is what they're basically saying. When you complain, it exaggerates the present. Second thing complaining does is it glorifies the past. Oh, the good old days. Oh, the good old days. They weren't all that good. But you glorify the past. Oh, my goodness. It would be so much better to return and die in Egypt. Complaining predicts a hopeless future, questioning God's goodness. Why has God? God can't be good if he does this. And complaining ultimately is a fantastic way to justify rebellion. We're going to select and return to Egypt because we're doing the smart thing and the better than God knows thing when it's really just rebellion, which is God going to say those exact words. So this location where they are actually having this kind of debate um, becomes pivotal because 40 years are going to have to wander because of what happens right here. So they departed. They came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran, also known as Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation, we know better than God. We're going back to Egypt. We got a new leader, Moses. And they showed them the fruit of the land. So as this stuff's come in place, they've got a decision to make. Are we going to trust Caleb and Joshua? Here's the good stuff. Let's trust God or trust the 10 with the bad report. Now, it's interesting, scholars are really don't know exactly what to do with Kadesh. There's a couple of different possible locations. One of the possible locations of Kadesh Barnea, right where this kind of conversation is happening, is in the wilderness wanderer. It's actually what you and I might know as Petra. So there's a big temple there right now. It's an amazing place where there's just giant mountains in that section. So if you want to picture yourself... Here's the kind of the terrain of the spies returning. Do we know better than God? What are we going to do? And here in this location, the decision they make is going to affect an entire generation. And here again is where I would just encourage you to look at your own heart. When the human heart thinks it knows better than God, what you deserve, what you're owed, what you understand, you can talk yourself into anything. I will never forget a good friend of mine who walked into my office a couple decades ago and said, Chad, I need to let you know that I, I'm having an affair. 
I'm embarrassed, I feel shame, but I'm having an affair. I said, well, let's talk about that and see how we can kind of move in a Godward direction in this thing. He said, we need to realize how poorly my wife has treated me, how much I wasn't, you know, encouraged the way I need to be encouraged. And he just began for the next 30 minutes to tell me all the ways in which he knew how his wife should act. He knew what he deserved. He knew how his employer should have handled things a certain way or, or treated him a certain way. And as I was listening to really a broken heart, you could just hear all of the toiling of self-pity that had gone on for two, five, ten years had set the, 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 the soil was just so ready for the seeds of rebellion. He knew better what he was owed and God wasn't giving it to him. He knew better what he was owed and, and his work wasn't giving it to him. He knew better than, than God what his wife should be doing or shouldn't be doing. And while he was in pain, it was actually that attitude underneath that that set the stage for all of these rebellious behaviors. And we got done talking, and, and I said, well, you're open to feedback. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you're open to being challenged on any of that stuff. And I challenged him that, that he wasn't really taking responsibility and that, that he had allowed the self-pity of I know better to toil the seeds to not be able to see his own rebellion. And he didn't take it well. Um, but he started thinking about it. And ultimately, he broke off that relationship, and I got to be part of some conversations with he and his wife and several of us as church leaders, and I got a call maybe about five years ago, and it was just an amazing call. He said, Chad, you know, I've been reconciled to God. My wife and I have reconciled. She was amazingly forgiving, and we worked through some of the issues that led us to this bad place. He said, but I also realized that I kind of have this self-pity, I know better than God, poor me attitude that allowed me to justify my rebellion. And I had to repent of that. And it's been amazing to see how someone who was in the darkest moment of God explaining to God why he could and should do what he was doing to now be repentant and be restored. That's why the book of Numbers is really our story. It's a story of people who think we know better than God and yet God can work with us wherever we are and lead us to the promised land. And that's why my second point here is that God's planning needs to be not work. You don't work on your God's planning. You need to repent from it. God's planning needs to be repented from, not worked on. You have to say, God, I need to repent. Yeah, I need to work on not being so grumbling. No, you need to repent. I need to work on maybe being a little more grateful. No, you need to repent. Repenting is I'm not trusting you, God. I think I know better than you, God. And I'm telling you how to run the universe, God. You don't work on that. You repent of that. And that's what's amazing is as soon as Aaron and Moses and Joshua and Caleb hear this new God-splaining attitude, they immediately repent. Even though they're not the ones doing it, they're repenting on behalf of the people. Look, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of children of Israel. Guys, no! We need to repent. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jehunanah, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And these were always signs in Israel of repentance. You tear your clothes, you put ashes on your head, you fall down. God, help us. We, have, we are so astray. We are so off base. We've so gone the wrong way. And they spoke to the congregation of Israel saying some things, which we'll get into in a moment. Do you know how to repent? Do you know how to apologize to someone else or to God? 
I'm often amazed at Christians who study their Bible their whole life, and then when you ask them if they know how to apologize, they'll say, well, I struggle with that. I got a real big ego, or it wasn't modeled real well for me. Well, those are probably all true, and you still need to get good at it. And so what does it mean to apologize? I'll give you three steps or five steps. Number one, I did it. God, I was arrogant. God, I was self-righteous. God, I thought I knew better than you. I did it. Number two, it was wrong. Number three, I'm sorry. How many of our marriages, how many of our relationships with our kids, how many times have you turned to your kids and say, you know what, I was wrong, I was impatient with you, I was harsh, I did it, I was wrong, and I'm sorry. The healing power of repentance in relationships It's not easy, but it is simple. I did it. It was wrong. I'm sorry. And if you're courageous enough, you can add two more steps to it. Will you forgive me? And what can I do to make up for this? Now, with God, it's very similar. Falling on your face, tearing your clothes in the Jewish tradition is God. I did it. I was wrong. I'm sorry. And because of the gospel, thank you that you've already forgiven me for it. So teach me how I can live in a way that's different next time. Let's not do one more lap around the wilderness. I was talking to a couple recently, and they both were talking about the challenges in their relationship and their marriage, and and I'd given some advice to each one. And both had come back and said they were working on their stuff, and the other person wasn't working on their stuff. Classic example. So uh, as I was talking to the husband, I said, well, you said you're working on your stuff. One of the things I'd ask you to reflect on is you said that you've been very, very harsh. And I asked you if your wife has a need for security, a need for, for comfort, how your harshness might have hurt that. And I asked you to reflect on that. Yeah, I really did. And I said, then I, like, I told you to go back and take whatever piece you could and say, hey, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Did you do that? <sighs> no. So when you say you're working on it, you mean you haven't done it. I was talking to her. I said, you know, your husband told me that he really needs some encouragement and that you haven't really been good at affirming him for most of your marriage. You've basically, your husband is malnourished because of the lack of positive affirmation from you. Are you willing to own the fact that you've malnourished your husband by being harsh and being negative and not being encouraging? Yeah, I think that's true. I didn't have that modeled really well growing up and... I said, well, why don't you go apologize for that? This is just going to create the the context to rebuild your relationship. Well, he'll use it against me. And we got to learn how to repent. I was talking to a guy recently. uh, When he was a kid in high school, they went out and they found this old car in in the wilderness, in in, some guy's backyard. And they thought it was kind of a car he'd parked out in the woods. And so they grabbed some rocks. And they're like, hey, this will be fun, you know. Cracked through the windows, cracked through the windows. And apparently, this wasn't a car he'd abandoned. He uh, liked that car, and he comes running out, and these two kids run away, and uh, he's yelling at them. Well, that guy ends up becoming a Christian in college. He actually was a lifeguard, and he saved a guy when they went out in the river tubing one day, and one of the guys was drowning, and my friend jumped in the water and saved him, pulled him out of the water. And his friend said, hey, you saved me. Can I save you? And he told him about Jesus. And that's when he became a Christian. 
So this friend of mine, now he's a Christian, he says, I need to go back and repent and make up for some things I've done. And of all the things he thought of, he thought of this time back in high school that he busted this guy's car up. And it was, uh, back in the day, it was about $50. That uh, was a lot of money for him. So he, he saved up $50 and he shows up at the door. It's been, you know, 10 years, knocks on the door. Hey, do you recognize me? Oh, I recognize you. He says, well, listen, I've become a Christian. I'm trying to make up for the things I've done wrong because God's forgiven me for what I've done and, and I want to make it right. Here's $50. I'm so sorry that we broke your windows in your car. And the guy is so flabbergasted. He says, uh, thank you. Tell you what, I'll, I'll just take 20. <laughs> he took 20 and gave him 30 back. He was just amazed that somebody would apologize and reconcile. And things that people are shocked by and amazed by should be normal Christian behavior. Learning how to repent from our God's planning, our righteousness, and our complaining. So thirdly, third thing we learned about God's planning is that uh, it needs to be replaced with something. So what's the opposite of, of God's planning? Well, the opposite of God's planning is thankfulness? Eh. Being grateful? Eh. The opposite of God's planning is God's sustaining. Because when you God-splain, you're saying, God, you're not enough. Your plan's not enough. But when God's sustaining says, God, whatever unknowns out there, whatever challenges come, whatever fortified cities, whatever giants, I know that you're bigger than all of them. And so really, the, the challenge of dealing with grumbling and complaining is really an invitation to allow God to sustain you more in the way you live your life. And you see that clearly come out of the text here. Number one, we focus on God sustaining us and God's opportunities around us. Look at what Caleb and Joshua saw. The land we passed through to spy out, it's an exceedingly good land. There's good land and a good God and good opportunities. God's going to sustain us. And guys, if the Lord delights in us, if the Lord delights in us, if he's sustaining us, he's going to bring us in the land. He's doing the work, not us anyway. And it's a land flowing with milk and honey. So let's focus on God sustaining us, God delighting us, whatever the future holds. Number two, God's planning equals rebellion. God's sustaining brings clarity to what you see. He says, do not rebel against the Lord. I mean, rebelling against the Lord, we're just complaining a little bit. No, you're rebelling against the Lord. And don't fear. Fear is driving your decisions. The fear of the people of the land. For they are our bread. We're going to eat them up. They're our bread. Their protection has departed from them. See the clarity? When you realize God is for you, Whatever big, nasty obstacles are before you, but their protection has been removed from them because God is for you, not for them. And the Lord is with us. And there it is. The Lord's with us. That's why it's so clear. It doesn't matter how big the giants are. My dad's bigger than all of them. It doesn't matter how big the city is. My dad's city's bigger than all of them. God's sustaining brings clarity in seeing your circumstances. And all the congregation responded, what a great speech! And they decided to stay own them. This is a classic, you know, you, you work really hard on a talk or a sermon and you get it all done and somebody comes up and says, yeah, I think I'm going to another church. <laughs> it's just classic, like the worst possible response to God's invitation to move from God explaining to God sustaining. And it ends with a question, I think it's a question we need to ask ourselves, how long are you going to rebel? How long are you going to continue the pattern of not being repentant, thinking you know better than God, and complaining? 
Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting. Uh-oh. Everybody, come here. Out, out of the pool. Time to talk. Before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? We're just complaining a little bit. No, you're rejecting me. You're not being sustained by me. How long will they not, see what he gets to the bottom of it, believe me? It's a trust issue. It's a belief issue. After all the signs I performed among them, why can't they trust me? Now, if any of us look at the last couple of years, we have faced our own giants and fortified cities with chaos in our business, chaos at home, chaos in our culture, chaos in health, fear everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And I would just encourage you that in the midst of all that uncertainty, it's been easy for us to step into patterns of complaining or not trusting God or not realizing our self-righteous attitudes toward God and toward the life. And sometimes we need help, right? We need a Caleb and a Joshua to speak into our life and say, guys, come on, don't forget God's for us. Hey, don't forget, God delights in us. So part of what we do as a church is we come together as a church to, to encourage each other, to help each other, say, hey, you got off the path, that's okay, hey, let's get back on the path. Hey, you're starting to stumble a little bit and drift a little bit. Let, let me help kind of get you back on the path. And here's just a couple opportunities coming up at the church that might be helpful for you, whether you're steering somebody else, maybe your kids uh, in and out of rebellion, or whether you need somebody to help you in that process. One of those is uh, for kids. We have a parenting workshop called How to Parent in a Pandemic coming up. And we're going to have some, some speakers and, and the challenges of all the different relationship fear that's come up and all the different chaos that's come in. So maybe that's a way in which you need someone to come alongside and give you some new tools as you're trying to shape some people in your life, especially your kids. Maybe it's leadership, right? We've got a critical leadership moment here. You know, 12 people, the leader's got to decide, are we going to trust God and go in or are we not going to trust God and go back to Egypt? Ken Kington's going to be back with us. He's going to offer a, a one-time, four critical decisions uh, teaching for men and women leaders. Anyone who's interested, that's going to be on Saturday, April the 2nd. And this is an opportunity for us just to say, how do we as leaders not let our fear drive us? And how can we be examples of being wise leaders who trust God? So maybe that's a tool that can help you as you're trying to figure out how to do this whole faith thing versus fear thing. And then coming in later April, I'm actually going to do a, a, um, a workshop for several weeks called God's Home Info, and we're going to look at tools for improving yourself, your marriage, and your family, and that's going to be for guys on Sunday nights and Mondays. I'll do that for four weeks. So again, this is how we as a church are trying to help each other grow and be equipped to trust God, because I want you to have a different spirit. Ten spies had the typical spirit, complain, grumble. I want you to have a different spirit, the spirit of Caleb and Joshua. It transforms marriages, it transforms families, it transforms churches, it transforms communities. You want to be around people who have a spirit of courage and joy and peace and gentleness and self-control. You don't want to be around people who are always Debbie Downer, Eeyore-esque, nothing's going to work, it's all going to fall apart. And notice how it ends here. This is that different spirit, and this is what I want for you, develop a different spirit. Now to do that, you've got to repent of your God-splaining and you've got to embrace the pardon God has for you. God had to die and step into the gap 
to pay for your and my self-righteousness. My servant Caleb has a different spirit. That's what I want for you, a different spirit. He has followed me fully. I'm going to bring him into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move out into the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. He says, Caleb and Joshua, trust me, they're going to survive the next 40 years, and they're going to get this land. But the rest of you who aren't going to repent, I'm going to make you face the consequences of your actions. So the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me? I'm going to strike them with pestilence and with disinherit them. I'm going to make of you, Moses, I'll make a new nation out of you, greater and mightier than they. And Moses says to the Lord, whoa, 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 God, don't do that. When the Egyptians hear about that, uh, then your might, you brought them out of the people, and then they're going to say, and then you abandon them in the wilderness. No, let's not do that. So here's what's amazing. If the people get what they deserve, they're going to get judgment. And God's ready to kill them all off. Start over. But thank goodness a prophet steps into the gap where God wants to judge his people righteously and somebody steps in the gap and says, let's not judge them, let's pardon them. It's a reminder of what we need, who Jesus is. He's the ultimate Moses. He steps into the gap and where we deserve judgment, he petitions God for pardon. And it continues. See, when the Egyptians heard you, Lord, that you are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face and the cloud stands above it, then you go before them in pillar of cloud and pillar of night. Now, if you kill these people, even though they deserve it as one man, then the nations which have heard your fame will speak and say, well, because the Lord was not able to bring his people in the land which he swore to give them, he killed them in the wilderness. This doesn't be good for your name or for your fame. So Moses says, so I pray, let the power of my Lord be great. Just as you have spoken. I know what you're really like. The Lord of the Old Testament, same God as the New Testament, is long-suffering, in other words, for patience, abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. By no means, he, he clears the guilty. He visits the iniquity of fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So pardon the iniquity of the people. I pray according to the greatness of your mercy, just you've forgiven the people from Egypt to now, just forgive one more time. And the Lord said, all right. I have pardoned. According to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and all the signs I did, and they put me to the test now these ten times. I've been keeping track ten times. They have not heeded my voice. They certainly shall not see the land which I swore to them. So he says, I'm going to forgive them, but there's still consequences. This is why Jesus is the ultimate Moses. He says, guys... I'm willing to pardon you. I came and died on the cross to pardon you. God is very merciful. But there are also consequences to living a life of complaining. There's also consequences of living a life of rebellion. If you remember my map of the Old Testament, it talks about exactly that, right? The people have just come out of Egypt. They're just about to get in the promised land. They're literally on the edge of tomorrow, the edge of 400 years of predictions. And instead, they're going to wander for 40 years and here's what I want for you. Don't waste 40 years of your life complaining and being in fear. Instead, develop a different spirit. 
I want you to have the spirit of Caleb. And wait till you see next week, we'll develop this a little bit more. The spirit of Caleb has courage. The spirit of Yahshua, the Lord saves. What does that developing a different spirit look like? It says God is good. The opportunities he's given me, though they look hard, are good. And I'm going to let God be the king of my heart. And I'm going to demote myself as king of my heart. As we're going to find out next week, Caleb's going to say 40 years later, I still want the mountain territory. I still want to take on the giants because my faith is as strong now at age 85 as it was when I was back there at age 40. Let's pray together. Father, may we develop a different spirit. The fruit not of our spirit, but the fruit of your spirit. Would your spirit come close to each person listening and watching and worshiping? Show us how to surrender more control to you, to allow you to sustain us. That our lives be filled with the spirit of what Caleb had. Courage and wisdom and love and joy and peace. We declare even now, Father, that you are the king of our heart. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for worshiping with us and studying the Word together with us. If you're watching online, we'd love to know how we can serve you better. Feel free to reach out to us, uh, email or whatever. If you're here in the room, we'd love to put a name with a face. Third door on the left is the hearth room. And we'll see you all next week as we continue our journey through the book of Numbers. Thanks for being here.